Please turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We have uh, we've been in John 11 now. This is finishing the chapter. Um, but what, what we've just seen, if you've been with us, is Jesus raising a man from the dead, bringing a, bringing a dead man back to life. And so we are now picking up at the end of that particular miracle. A man who had been in the grave for four days, Jesus calls him out of the grave and he comes back to life. And this is what happens next, starting John 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees. And told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for, they were seeking Jesus. And saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Will he come to the feast at all? And now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your holy and infallible word. God, I ask that your words would burrow in deep to our hearts, that they would change us from the inside out, that my words would fall away and be forgotten, uh, Lord, but that you would work in us through the power of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to cast your memories back a little bit. Um, for me, it would be to the ninth grade, um, which is not as far for me, maybe, as for some. Uh, but you'll remember John Steinbeck's little book, Of Mice and Men. I'm sure you all read that in ninth grade English. At least that's when I read it. Um, or if you're a, a public schooler like me, that you read two to three chapters of it, and then your teacher cut the movie on, and you just finished it out like that. It was a joke. Thank you for laughing, homeschool mom. All right. 
So, uh, John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, that title comes from a poem. Uh, and, a, and a snippet of that poem is at the very beginning of the book. Uh, and what it says is this. The best laid plans of mice and men go off astray and leave us not but grief and pain for promised joy. It's a little depressing, I realize, but you catch the gist, right? That, uh, and, and, you've, and you've experienced this frustration that no, no matter how well you do at making your plans, even the best laid plans, right, that you, where you've tried to figure out every single detail, inevitably something comes along and frustrates those plans. And at least from the perspective of the poem, when that happens, we are left with grief and pain for promised joy instead of promised joy. Um, Again, a little bit pessimistic in its outlook on life. But what we see here in this passage are two plans. There are two plans that are at work. The first plan, the first one we're going to look at, Uh, is the plan of the Sanhedrin. Uh, This is the ruling council of the Jewish people. Uh, This is in verse 47 where it says the council. The word there is Sanhedrin. This is is the Pharisees and the Sadducees together, right? And they're making plans. They're making plans uh, because the time has come to do something definitive with Jesus. Uh, Things have reached that point. And for their part, the plans, their plans will come to fruition. Uh, their plans, in at least one measure, will succeed. But underneath their plans, right, if their plan is up here on the surface, their plans to arrest and put Jesus to death, underneath their plans, there is another plan. And that is God's plan. That is God's plan to use their plans for His own glory, for His own purpose. And this is God's plan. God's plan is to rescue his lost children through the atoning death. And we're going to talk about that word atonement, what that means. Uh, But to rescue his lost children through the atoning death of his one and only son, Jesus. But before we look at that plan, let's, let's look at man's plan. Let's look at the plans of the Sanhedrin at work through unbelief. Remember, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, right? A a man whose flesh was already decaying. Um, Mary even says, when Jesus says, take the stone away from the tomb, uh, Mary says, Lord, if if we roll that stone away, there's going to be a stench. So let's let's not do that, right? So that's how far his decay had had gone. uh, And Jesus basically calls her to believe and then calls Lazarus out of the tomb. That's the miracle. That's what these people have seen. And praise the Lord, many see and believe. They see what Jesus has done, and they believe in him. But some are tattletales. Some go and they tell the Pharisees what Jesus has done. Uh, And I I find it remarkable. Uh, We can call it... uh, the unbelievability of unbelief, that, that they see the miracle. They see what Jesus has done, but they do not see. They do not see who Jesus is. They see the sign, but they don't see where the sign is pointing. The Pharisees don't see where the sign is pointing. And so they, uh, these people, they run, they tell the Pharisees, the Pharisees 
decide that the moment has come to call the Sadducees, to gather the council and to figure out what in the world we're going to do. What are we to do? Another way to translate this is to say, what are we doing? Right? Everything we've tried up to this point has not stopped this Jesus train. This man keeps doing signs. And so what are we going to do about him? Right? It's, they, so they see the signs, but they don't see Jesus. It's like, uh, it's like you're going to the beach. Imagine you're driving down to Gulf Shores. You're heading down Highway 59, and uh, there's a sign there put up on the side of the road, one of those you know, digital letter signs that says, Beach Closed. Strong undertow. And you keep driving. And you get to the T, right? You park, you go to the public beach. And there's a sign right there by the boardwalk as you walk down onto the beach and says, Beach closed, no swimming, strong undertow. And there at the, the lifeguard stand, there's the flagpole with the, the red flag waving, right? Do not swim. Beach closed. Strong undertow. And then... Imagine that you, uh, you go ahead, you know, you've ignored all of those signs and you go ahead and you put your foot in the water and one of those planes, you know, that always, they're only ever at the beach and they always like have behind them the advertisement, right? It says, seriously, don't go in the water, you're going to die. Uh, and then you take a step further and um, a magical dolphin pops its head out of the water and says, really? You're going to do this? Seriously, don't go swimming, Right? That's where, that's where it seems like the Pharisees are. They've received sign after sign after sign, and yet they refuse to see where the signs are pointing. They see what Jesus is doing, signs that say loud and clear, this is the Messiah, this is the one you've been waiting for. And instead of believing in him, they refuse to see. Why? What are they so worried about? What troubles them about Jesus? Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So they imagine just huge throngs and crowds going after Jesus. And the Romans will come and take away both our place. Uh, that's the word for probably for the temple is what they're talking about. So the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our temple and our nation. Uh, so what they're worried about, what they're saying is if we don't do something, then this Jesus guy is going to whip up everybody into a rebellious frenzy, right? And this had happened before. There's good reason for them to worry that these uh, messianic pretenders, right, these guys had come along and they had pretended to be the Messiah, and what they had done is they had led uprisings, different uprisings against the government. Uh, and each time they had been put down, and so they're worried that this is going to happen again with Jesus. Uh, and if Jesus whips everybody up into a frenzy, we're getting close to Passover time, so religious fervor is at its height. Um, if everybody gets whipped up into a frenzy, frenzy, the Romans are going to hear about it. They're the ones in control. The Romans are going to hear about it, and they're going to descend on us, and they're going to, they're going to destroy the temple, and they're going to destroy our nation. And so uh, they're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid of a loss of power. Uh, the, the Sanhedrin uh, was a religious ruling council. That's the only power that they had. And so if the Romans decide that the Jews no longer get to freely worship, if the Romans decide they want to destroy the temple, then the Sanhedrin loses its authority. There's nothing 
Uh, they no longer have influence over people. They'll lose. So in reality, right, they will lose their place. They'll lose their place of importance and influence. And maybe they're afraid of losing their identity. They're afraid of losing their culture. Uh, they say that the Romans are going to take away our nation, right? And, and what had happened was that they, instead of simply identifying themselves as the, as the people of God, the people whom God had called through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and um, what they had come to do was really, it was less about being identified with God of the Old Testament and more about being identified as Jewish, right? This is our ethnicity. This is our culture, and we don't want to lose it. And so their unbelief is rooted in fear. They refuse to follow Jesus. They refuse to trust Jesus. They refuse to believe in Jesus because they fear losing what is so important to them. I wonder, what is that for you? What is it that drives your unbelief? What is it that you want to clutch so tightly uh, that, that Jesus is a threat to? Really, we could even say, what is it that you are worshiping? What rival God sits in your heart? What rival God is taking Jesus' place, rightful place in your heart? And so you're afraid. You're afraid. You don't believe. You won't give your heart over fully to Jesus because you don't want to lose that, whatever that is. Because Jesus is a threat to that. Jesus doesn't want just the half of you. He wants the whole of you. Uh, to Jesus, it doesn't matter. Uh, he's, in fact, already said that the temple is doomed. He said that in John, early on in John, where he said, I will rebuild the temple, right? He said, I am the new temple. I'm not worried about your place. I'm worried about my place. I wonder, what is your unbelief rooted in? What are you afraid of losing? Here's what this does for them. Here's where their unbelief takes them. Verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas seems like a rather unpleasant fellow, uh, but he's a man who knows politics. And he knows what the politically expedient solution to the problem is. Let's just kill Jesus. Rather than lose our nation, rather than lose our authority, rather than lose our identity and our place, we need to kill Jesus. Uh, it's, it's a common political move, right? It's choosing the lesser of two evils. It's really we need to sacrifice the one for the good of the many. Seems noble, right? We want to preserve our culture. We want to preserve our nation. So that means we need a scapegoat. We need somebody who is going to die for us. We need to sacrifice the one for the sake of the many. Here's the irony of their best laid plans. Uh, it looks like the Sanhedrin agrees with them. Um, they go on, as it says in verse 33, uh, 53, that uh, they made plans to put him to death. So much so that Jesus actually withdraws and he hides himself in Ephraim because it's not quite time. 
And then as the Passover gets close, people start talking, right? If you were uh, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, you had to go up to the feast a week early. So all these people are coming to Jerusalem, and they're getting ready for the feast. But there's the question. Where's Jesus? Is he coming? Is he going to show himself? And the Sanhedrin puts the word out. If you see him, let us know because we're going to arrest him. And so the, the warrant has been issued for Jesus' arrest. Here's the irony of their best laid plans. In AD 70, just 40 years after this point, the Romans will come in and they will destroy Jerusalem and they will destroy the temple. And so all that Caiaphas and his boys hoped to prevent will come to pass. The best laid plans of Sadducees and Pharisees will go astray and they will leave them Nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. They had hoped to preserve the nation. But that's not what God really was interested in preserving. And so they would lose it to the Romans. All that they had worked to prevent would eventually frustrate them anyway. And so we see that, uh, that man's plans, especially when hatched in unbelief, uh, do go astray. Uh, and they will be frustrated. But there's another plan. There's another plan at work underneath that. Uh, and it's God's plan. God's plan at work through the atonement. Let's talk about that word, atonement. That's a, that's a religious word. It's a Bible word. And what it means basically is a payment or a, a reparation, right? A, a payment for some kind of sin or wrongdoing. And so it's not really just a religious word. In fact, if you hold no religion at all, uh, you carry the, uh, the desire or the seed of this around in your heart already, right? Uh, that if you wrong someone, you feel a need to make it right. Or, better yet, if someone wrongs you, you want them to make it right. You want the payment to be made. Our, our legal system really works on this principle uh, that when uh, somebody has wronged another, they must pay. Atonement has to be made. Uh, but... The reason this is, of course, carried around in our hearts is because it is a religious word. And most, if not all, religions have some sense of atonement at their core, right? Whether you're looking at, uh, whether you're looking at Greek mythology uh, or any of the number of religions available uh, on the menu today, odds are you will find a sense of atonement somewhere at its core. This idea that uh, you don't measure up that you are not good enough, uh, that, that you must do something or make some form of sacrifice or payments in order to close the gap between you and God, right? Uh, so the way it typically works, I fall short of God's standard and I must do certain things to keep him or her or it happy. And what that usually means, for instance, in a religion like Islam, is you have a series of laws, you have a series of practices, uh, obedience, that help you atone for your sin. In other more ancient religions, it was a series of sacrifices. But still, that idea of atonement is there. Whether through my life or through the payment of a sacrifice, I have to close the gap. This relationship between God and I is broken. Uh, if I... If I want to come back as a cow instead of a dung beetle, I have to live a certain kind of life. I have to balance the scales. Um, 
And if you're thinking that way, and I guarantee, well, I can't guarantee, but odds are that you are because you're human, and that's, a nat, that, that's built into us, right? That uh, at some level, we don't measure up to the standard, and we must do something in order to balance the scales. So whether it's payment, sacrifice, obedience, what you do is the atonement. So what does the Bible have to say about this idea of atonement? The Bible is pro-atonement, right? The Bible would agree with the rest of uh, religions and with the, the, the rest of human nature that it would say atonement is necessary. In fact, it probably takes it a step further. Hebrews 9:22 says this, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if you sin... Blood payment is required. Now that sounds a little uh, that sounds a little ancient and scary, but that's the truth. If you sin, then it's not just here's what that means. You can't right your way out of all your wrongs. That at least in the Bible's turn, uh, blood payment must be made in order to close the gap. So. There's two ways that we can apply this, and the first is this. That, that inward sense that you have of not measuring up, of not being good enough, don't silence that. Don't try to push it down with the power of positive thinking, right? Like, no, that's not true. I do. I'm, I'm a nice person. Um, oh, what was the Saturday Night Live skit? Uh, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, right? Um, there's, there's the power of positive thinking at work. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to, to, to quash that sense that you don't measure up. But here's, but that's real. That's not, that's not a figment of your imagination. That's really there. Because here's what the Bible says in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that sense that you have that you're not good enough, that you don't measure up in an ultimate eternal sense, that's not just a nagging feeling. That's the truth. And the Bible calls that sin. And if that's true, if that nagging sense is actually your sin separating you from God, then you can't live your way out of it. Right living won't cut it. But that's your first play, isn't it? Usually when I'm in a conversation with somebody particularly who's struggling with the consequences of their sin, uh, usually the first thing I hear is, I'm, I'm, I've just got to do better. I've got to make some better decisions. I've got, to, I've got to try harder. And that works if you're trying to shave a few seconds off your mile time. Uh, but if you are trying to close the gap between you and God... Uh, that philosophy will not cut it. Uh, that won't work where your greatest need is concerned because your greatest problem, my greatest problem, is not my bad choices. That's not what the Bible says. My greatest problem is not a lack of wisdom or education or knowledge. My greatest problem is not bad choices. My greatest problem is a bad heart. Our greatest problem is sin. And if sin is to be forgiven, then blood payment must be made. What that means is that my life and your life is forfeit. And it needs to be atoned for. 
And your attempts to pay your debt are something like if, uh, if you owed me $10,000 and what you brought me was a $5 bill. Uh, that really won't cut it. But that's what we try to do, paying a $10,000 debt with a $5 bill. So if I cannot pay my debt, if I cannot atone for my sin, what hope do I have? We read it in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John the Baptist would say at the beginning of this gospel... Looking at Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Revelation 5. We get this scene in heaven where uh, all of creation is singing a song and they're singing a new song to Jesus. And here's what they say. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain like a sacrifice, like a lamb. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Not only is the Bible pro-atonement, but the Bible is also but the Bible also says you can't make the atonement. And so another must pay your debt, and that other is Jesus. So let's go back to John's gospel here in chapter eleven and see how this works itself out, how, how God's plan is at work. Uh, Caiaphas, uh, the high priest, he tells them, he tells the rest of the Sanhedrin, all right, guys, here's the plan. We need to sacrifice the one for the many. It's better that this Jesus should die than that we lose our whole nation. And then John says something interesting. Verse 51, he, that's Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So, on the one hand, Caiaphas is terribly wrong. What he aims to do is wicked, and he is an evil man, and because he encourages his fellow leaders to put an innocent man to death so that what they cherish most, what they want most, can be preserved. That's on the one hand. Caius is terribly wrong. Caiaphas is terribly wrong. But on the other hand, he's more right than he knows. God actually uses this wicked man to prophesy the truth that Jesus would in fact die for the nation. He would in fact be sacrificed. One will die for the many. And not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. All the scattered flock of God will be brought in to the family by the death of Jesus. He already mentioned it in John, John 10. So Jews and Gentiles alike uh, will be brought in by the atoning death of Jesus. 
And so it is, the one will die for the many. The one and only son for all of God's sons and daughters. Uh, so here's, what, here's some ways uh, that this applies to us, what this might mean for us. And the first is this. God is not caught off guard by the best laid plans of mice and men. God is not caught off guard by evil men and their schemes. In fact, God uses evil men and their schemes. He will frustrate their plans or he will bring them to fruition as he sees fit in order to fulfill his purpose. And that is nowhere more true than in what he does with his son on the cross. He puts him forward. It is God in Isaiah 53 who puts the son to death. Here's something else. The atonement, Jesus' atonement, is not for the entire world. Notice that John says it is for all of God's scattered children. It is so that all of those, uh, all, verse 52, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So if Jesus' death is effective, it is effective for all of the sheep. It is not just laid out there waiting for anyone to take advantage. It is for man, it is not meant for all mankind, or if it was, it would pay for all of mankind. It is meant for God's people those who would believe in Jesus, which is what John 3.16 says, whoever believes will have eternal life. That is who the atonement is for. But then finally, this passage teaches this, that you're lost and that you need a redeemer. You need someone who will step in and close the gap between you and God. Someone who will close this huge canyon that exists because of your sin, because of my sin. One must die for the many. And the question is, will you try to be the one who dies? Or will you trust in the one who already has? Will you believe in the Redeemer who pays your debt? Will you believe in the Lamb who was slain so that we may have life, the very Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are willing to give your life, that you are the only man who has ever decided when he would lay his life down. We thank you for willingly and lovingly forfeiting your life so that we would be saved. So that there would be a redeemer for all of God's children in every tongue, tribe, and nation. Oh Lord, don't let us be don't let us be pharisaical. Don't let us miss Jesus because we are so determined on going our own way.
because we are blinded to the signs all around us. I pray, Lord God, that today you would open our eyes, that we would see the Jesus who turns water into wine, who causes lame men to walk, who causes blind men to see, who brings the dead to life. Indeed, Lord Jesus, that you would bring us to life if we are dead. I pray that we would hear your voice and that we would come out of the tomb and that we would be gathered into one family as your children. Help us to trust the atoning death, your atoning death. We pray it in Jesus' name.